Let me invite you to turn over to the next page for the passage we'll be considering together. The 61st Psalm. It is a pleasure to pinch hit for my city reform brothers. Uh, hopefully it's closer to a home run than a strikeout, but it's uh, kind of how these pinch hit works, but glad to, glad to step in and be of service tonight. Psalm 61, read this in our hearing. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, Salah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. This is indeed the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you take the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of our hearts and make them acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock, our redeemer, may these words on the page reveal to us the word of life himself, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So it was not too long ago that the that city went through, I think it was a, a Psalms, a series on the Psalms, uh, together in the life of the church. And of course, the Psalms occupy a very prominent place in the life of the church. As you look throughout history, they're used probably in more ways than any other particular books of the Bible. Occupy a very prominent place. And that's understandable. It's the biggest book, and it covers the whole range of human Christian experience. And that's why John Calvin said that the Psalms, right in this preface, the Psalms give us an anatomy of all parts of the human soul. So they speak to a great diversity of the stuff we go through in life. For instance, what are words that we might sing or say as we age? As, that, as we live through that slow descent into feebleness and gray hair. Well, we might take up the words of Psalm 46. The psalmist says, even to your old age, I am he and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. That's what we might say or sing. Psalm 46. Or what might you sing or, or say as you're driving to church or walking, as the case may be? Or biking, I guess, in the city, if there's folks that still bike. What might you say? Well, you might take the words of one of the Psalms of Ascent that the Levites would, Levites would sing or that Jews would sing as they headed to the temple in Jerusalem. And they'd say, I was glad 
when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Right? And so on. There's all kinds of human experiences in the full range that the, that the Psalms expose for us. They teach us not just how to think God's thoughts after him, but how to feel his thoughts. They form us and train us in sort of existential engagement with life as we take the words of the Psalms on our lips. But our question is, what, uh, what might we say, might, what words might we have, what prayer might, we, might be on our lips, what song might we sing when we're dealing with an overwhelmed heart? When your heart is overwhelmed. Psalm 61 is a good, good place to go for those feelings. I, I think most of us have gone through something like that, an overwhelmed heart. If not, it will happen. It's coming. So maybe take up these words in preparation for that. So let's consider together this song. And honestly, a lot of times theology is really an exercise in biography. Uh, you know, I think there's no more, uh, more poignant place that my own heart and mind has gone to over the years when I felt a sense of just being overwhelmed with life and stuff than these words of Psalm 61. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me. So let's consider this together for a few minutes in our time. And let's hang it on just two hooks there. Let's, let's think about the appeal that David makes here in this psalm, and then some affirmations he makes. So those two hooks, appeal and affirmation. His appeal is, is immediate. I mean, this is a setting where he's extremely disoriented, and he's looking for orientation. Or at least he's recalling a time when things weren't quite stable and steady and secure, and he's looking for that. He's longing for that. Some scholars have said this is a psalm of disorientation. Unlike those psalms that immediately just jump into high notes of praise or thanksgiving, those are orientation psalms. They have no regard for your particular circumstance and situa situation in life. They just kind of call you to and command you to this state of ex exaltation and praise. This one starts with at least the recall of a state of disorientation and looking for orientation, and he says it right there, in, right at the very beginning there. He says, well, the sense of orientation is seen when he says in verse two that he's crying out, Lord, hear my prayer from the end of the earth. I call to you from the end of the earth. Perhaps he was away from Jerusalem, uh, which was of course considered the center of the universe for uh, the Jews, that was the place where the ark was. That was, that was the place where, in a very real way, God dwelt with his people. So perhaps he was far away from that particular place, from Jerusalem, uh, being pursued by Saul, or later by his own flesh and blood son, Absalom. Or maybe he was just away on a military campaign and just felt that sense of distance. But in general, whatever the particulars are, the expression refers to, or can merely refer, to just having this sense of being, a, being far away from God's presence. 
just far off from where you think God actually is, that he's not with you, he's somewhere else far. And that's, of course, not an uncommon um, state of being for a lot of people. A lot of people have felt a sense of divine absence. Perhaps the best-selling medieval Christian book was one that talked expressly about not finding God in a difficult situation, a dark night of the soul. Right? And, it, and repeatedly, this kind of sentiment of absence, of divine absence, a lack of God's presence or a lack of felt sense of God's presence comes up repeatedly throughout the Psalms. I mean, David says it back in Psalm 10. He says, why do you stand so afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Right? He says these kinds of things. They show up. And I think it was Pascal and Ponces who says, the biggest question any religion has to answer is how do you deal with the hiddenness of God? How do you handle that? How do you explain the sense that every single religious person has from time to time that God is somehow not active and present in your particular circumstance or situation? But I think actually more poignant than that kind of geographical reference that he's crying out from God uh, afar, perhaps more poignant than that here in this passage is not that sense of divine absence that he expresses, but I think his disposition of heart as he expresses it, as he experiences it. What does he say? He says, from the ends of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. He's expressing, experiencing a state of faint-heartedness. We might say he's in a state of severe emotional distress. Um, a sense of just kind of emotional vulnerability and weakness. Right? A loss of strength to cope with the particular circumstance in which he finds himself. Again, this is, a, this is not something that's rare or uncommon. There's, there's a great exposition of it in Psalm 102 of what it means to be faint-hearted. There it's, it describes, if you looked over at 102 later, David says, his heart is struck down. He struck down. I'll never forget a man coming to the condominium in which I was living years ago. Uh, he was a friend of my a, a condominium mate, and he was looking for him, and I opened the door, and I see this guy standing there as pale as Casper the ghost. And I didn't know what the deal was. I told him that his friend wasn't, wasn't home, and he, he left. And later I was told that uh, he literally, his wife had literally just told him she's leaving him. He was a picture of a heart struck down, if ever there was one. Um, Psalm 102 goes on to talk about so the heart being struck down, but also that it was in such a state that he forgot to eat bread. Have you ever been so emotionally destabilized that you just don't even eat? Uh, he also says he can't sleep. His days are dark like evening shadow. 
right? Your whole perception of reality changes when you are experiencing faint-heartedness. Things were bad. I think in our modern, the language of modernity, of, of uh, psychological modernity, um, would, this would be maybe something approaching depression. A sort of deflatedness and a sense of incapacity to actually deal with even the basics of life and to just feel without capacity at any level, energy, mental power, right? It's that stubborn darkness, as, as one professor put it, that just you can't shake and it just feels unresolvable. You know, when we think about something like spiritual depression, we have to uh, you know, think about the kind of attendant circumstances that, some of which David, no doubt, was experiencing here. You know, there's things that, that consider, there's lots of things to consider, and I'm not going to stand up here and act like I'm a clinical therapist or anything, but spiritual depression is a very, very common reality. Uh, I remember the doctor that treated most of the seminary students said that he expected students to come in and basically all articulate that they feel some sense or measure of depression, some sense of being overwhelmed uh, with life. Um, and some of the things that affect that, of course, are physical, material, our physical bodies. Our bodies put pressure on us. They're not, they're not uh, the sole causal factor, but they are factors which put pressure on us and would dispose us, of course, right, to, uh, uh, to feel down. We're tired or hungry or don't get enough sleep or there's some, some illness that's d draining our bodies. It can put pressure on us to, in, a, in a way that we respond with a source of deflatedness. There's also the kind of social, cultural environment in which we find ourselves. We're enmeshed in communities of people, our families, our work, our school. Those things influence us. In fact, David even says, verse 3, says, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Right? We don't exist as these sole agents in the universe. People are bumping into people. People are bumping into us. People are saying things, doing things. We respond. And that affects us. It has a very strong influence on us, so we think about those things. So our bodies, our, our, soci our sociality, our relationships, um, and of course, spiritual battles. We have an ancient foe. We wrestle against principalities and powers, not against flesh and blood. There are darts being hurled at us, and that enemy of our souls is at work seeking to devour us and to destroy us. And there's pressure that gets put on us. And then just think about how all of this mixes with the motions of our own little fickle hearts. Right? Our desires, our beliefs, the way we interpret things, our longings. And all of that can work together till it produces that messy mix that constitutes faint-heartedness. Faint and induces us to do what David does here, to cry out to God. And you know, the question becomes, it's, 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 you know, these things are heavy, and the question is, you know, 
what do we do when we're in that stubborn, dark place, when we are experiencing that, when we're feeling overwhelmed in this kind of way and incapacitated, things like that? Um, what do we do? Well, let me say this. For sure, we need something more uh, than antidepressants, something more than that. We, I'm glad we live in a day where we can deal with physical aspects of our states of mind and things like that. But we certainly need something beyond that for the believer. When internal stuff is spiraling us down and we're feeling faint and worn down, we actually need some, something external that actually pulls us out of ourselves. And you see that with David here. What does he say? What does he do? He says, when his heart is faint, Look at the request that just kind of follows, falls off his, his lips. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Lead me to the rock when my heart is faint. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how big a deal rocks are to us in the 21st century North America. They were a huge deal in ancient Near Eastern life. Certainly David was familiar with rocks. He, you know, he scaled those Judean uh, rock mountainsides and he would actually hide in those, right? When he was being chased by Saul. And, and certainly he would see those in all kinds of places. And rocks were probably the most stable and secure thing that their moral imagination could produce. I mean, we have iron and steel and all this, but still rocks are a picture of solidness and, 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 and stability and strength. And when you're weak and wobbly and faint-hearted, you're looking for something secure. You're looking for something stable, something strong, something that won't blow with the tempest of circumstances. You're looking for a rock. We need a rock. We need the rock. We need Christ who holds his people and does not shake from the surrounding circumstances, who never leaves or forsakes us. That's who we need. And you notice his appeal, leading me to the rock. Uh, uses language that suggests that he needs help getting there. Uh, he can't get to that rock. It's almost, you know, it's kind of passive language. It's almost as if um, he's struck by his own inability uh, to find that rock. And I mean, I think that points to a deep reality. This, this constant need for us to abandon our projects of self-reclamation. Uh, to get dashed on the rocks in such a way that we don't try, as the author of Invictus, right, to be the master of our fate and the captain of our souls, but we look out to a rock and we cry out for him. I think it was a monk who prayed, 
I can't, you must show me the way. I can't, you must show me the way. And this is a Presbyterian church, I'm a Presbyterian minister, but let's say that together. Let's pray that. I can't, you must show me the way. I can't. It is an absolute necessity to be smacked in your face when you're down with your own colossal inability to solve the problem and to abandon our ambitiously self-reclaiming tendency. (laughs) I must, you must, I can't show me the way, right? It's very common when you're down and depressed to even lose motivation, of course. We need the Lord, we need his spirit to renew us, to renew our dull wills, to quicken our desires. It's interesting how David in his prayer, he continues on, right? You have been my, he makes a mini affirmation right there as he prays to be led to the rock. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Um, It's interesting the images that he invokes to express his desire for retrieval to be taken away out of this circumstance or situation. Those images that he, he goes to. And their images would show really an increasing sense of intimacy and warmth from that place of kind of feeling left out and left abandoned. Right? He says in verse 3, um, you have been my refuge. A refuge is that place, a place to hide. Right? It's just a place you go hide. That's a refuge. It could be behind a rock, behind a tree. It's a place. And he expresses this recognition that God has been that to him, a place to hide. God is his mighty rock, his refuge, he says in Psalm 18. Then he says a strong tower. Strong tower is something that's in normally a city wall in a place in which you are not just kind of protected, but you go on the offensive. You don't just sit back and hide out. You're, you can go on the offensive from the city wall. And he talks about a tent. Let me dwell in your tent. A domestic place where you get care and protection from family. Or he might be thinking of the moving tabernacle before the... Right? That the place where God's very presence dwells with his people. Right? Better place than city tower or some remote refuge or something, right? And those images, they move. He's out in the wilderness to this fortified city in Jerusalem to the tabernacle closer to God until he says right in verse 4, let me dwell in, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Let me dwell under the very potent, protective power of God who shelters us. And let me do that in the place where I'm as close as possible to him. Where I'm as covered as possibly can be. Of course, that would solve that distance problem he expressed early on from the ends of the earth that he called out. Well, to be under the shelter of the Lord's wings is to not be... (laughs) far away. 
you know, it's so interesting to read Psalms like this where the psalmist is in a state of trouble and that state of trouble pushes him toward God, right? I know lots of people, I'm sure some of you do, maybe someone's in this state where trouble and difficulties, whether they be of an intellectual type or providential circumstance type, are things that drive that person away to deconversion. Uh, And here, in a person who actually knows God, who is in this covenantal relationship with him, where God has promised to be a God to his people and his people would have him as their God, people who really have that, troubles don't destroy their faith, it develops it. It builds it. It gives it muscle and gravitas and texture. He runs to God, not away from him. And that's a, that's a, that's an important point. So what do your troubles do to you? What does your overwhelmed heart, what does your, what are the weighty things of life? Are these things pushing you out the door of the church? Or are these things driving you to these places of humble reliance and fierce seeking? It's part of the mysterious way that God works that the same sun that hardens the clay melts ice. Are your circumstances making you tender, soft, dependent, tender-hearted, prayerful, or are you getting hardened? David gives us a picture here of what happens for one to one who actually knows God, who's firmly convinced of God's reality, his love, and all the things he actually has said about us. Now, just to, that's just the affirmation, just to close shortly with the, with, with, or that was some of the appeal, just to close out with a little affirmation, right? David's appeal, his prayer here, is, is actually undergirded uh, by some affirmations. Um, part of his apparent confidence in praying is in having experienced God work on his behalf previous to whatever circumstance or situation he's thinking of here. He, he tells us, he says, God has given him the heritage of those who fear. He, he has all the benefits and blessings of one who knows God, one who is in his community and his covenant family, as it were. He knows he's got all those blessings. He's experienced those things. He has that heritage as one who fears the Lord's name. God has acted faithfully on David's behalf. I mean, Goliath, (laughs) right? There's all kinds of instances where he's, God has shown his faithfulness to to David. And just in what God says, I love this quote by Voss, it's old uh, reformed theologian. He said, the best proof that God, he will never cease to love us, lies in that he never began. God, what's the proof that he loves his people is he never started to love us. He has always loved us from eternity past. His electing love has gone on for infinity backwards. 
It was never not there. So it's not going to stop. The greatest proof that he, best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began to. Right? And he turns, and it's interesting to close out just these, these verses about kingship here, six and seven, and commentators don't know what to do with that. It seems like a non sequitur. <laughs> Right? Well, he starts praying for kingship here after this kind of intense pleading and, and recognition. He's a difficult circumstance and God has come through and God will come through. And he turns in verses six and seven to this affirmation of kingship after saying, Oh God, you have heard my vows in verse five. You have given me the heritage of the one who feared your name. Then six, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Um, you know, it feels like, okay, what's going on here, David? You're going through a tense, tense thing here. Why are you praying for the king? It's probably not even for you. You probably weren't king when you wrote this. Or maybe you wrote this after you were king. And, and, but you seem to be praying for some, another king. What's the point of that? I think when you think about the logic of kingship, just for a moment, you go, okay, we can make the connection here. When you recognize that the king, especially in Israel, that the king is the one in whom all blessings, from whom all blessings flow to the kingdom and the people. The state of the king determines the state of the kingdom. That's why when you read through those historical books in the Bible about kings, it's always giving a picture of what the king was like. Did he do right in the eyes of the Lord or did he, was he an idol worshiper or whatever, right? Because that, we're to derive from that, well, then the kingdom was doing well. The hopes, life of the kingdom is tied up with the kind of king you have. So if the king prospers, if the king is a righteous king and is successful, then the blessings of that king extend to the kingdom. So to pray for the king's success and the king's prosperity is to pray for the prosperity of the kingdom. It's to pray for the success of the people under that king. And David knew he wasn't the ultimate king in Israel that needed to be successful. He's the one that we have the, uh, the, the, the Vedic promise that there would be a king after him and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There was always a looking forward to the best and better king and true king. He knew he wasn't the final king, although the kingdom was great under David. He wasn't the final one. So to pray for the establishment of the kingdom forever, that no law, the language David uses here, may he be enthroned forever before God, is to pray for the success of the king. It's to pray for the Messiah. It's to pray for Jesus to have his way to be enthroned forever and to see if the travail of his soul and be satisfied. To have all the people he came for and all the kingdoms of this world to be made the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. It's to pray for the establishment of God's full kingdom. And you know, it's what's so beautiful is that this kingdom is established not by just pure might, 
But we have a king who went all the way out of God's presence, as it were, not in ontological real categories, but who took all the sin, all the punishment, cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Went down, took on death, was punished, took the sin of all of his people. Right? Didn't just lead this perfectly pristine kingly royal life and all of its privilege and then rule. But was a king who first was a baby that grew up to die and to rise again and to be exalted to the right hand of God, the highest place ever, and given the name above all names, at which every knee is going to bow, either by mercy or by might. And so we, we can have confidence knowing he has led the way. He has led the way. I, uh, I love the Olympics and this thought of the king representing the kingdom and this thought of representation always uh, grabs me when I watch the Olympics. Because you sit there and you watch the athletes uh, do their thing and, you know, hopefully, you know, U.S., I'm American, so... Uh, the U.S., you know, you get a gold medal, and sometimes, depending on the event and how much I'm into it, I'm jumping up and down, right? <laughs> you know, I'm like going crazy with it. And then it always hits me at some point. I recognize that I did nothing. And I'm as excited as millions of other people, and I did nothing to get... And then you read those stories, you hear those stories about parents taking these Olympians out 4.30 in the morning to swim in and paying all these lessons to send them off to these camps and things like that, and that huge investment to get to the gold medal. And I'm rejoicing, and I didn't do any of that. And I realize the king does everything, and it gets imputed to me. So when the king is successful and it's prospering forever, then my overwhelmed heart will be taken care of. Uh, my faint-heartedness, my weakness, my wobbliness, <laughs> you know, my brooding toward, you know, all this, all our, all our stuff will get dealt with if the king is rightfully reigning and perfectly reigning. Everything else gets taken care of, and so we can rejoice in that. Let's pray together. Father, we're